You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. You've probably had the experience before. Things are going well. All the pieces are falling into place. The doors are opening. The right people are involved. You've got momentum. Things are getting off the ground. It's going quickly, maybe a little quicker quicker than you expected. But nevertheless, the energy's there, and you're excited. Couldn't be going better. And all of a sudden, in the midst of the excitement and the energy, it happens. You thought you were unstoppable, you thought it was going to, like it was happening, and then the roadblock happens. Boom! And all the momentum, and all the energy, all the excitement, gone. It's over. At least it feels like it's over. Sometimes we talk about this like going from the mountaintop to what? The valley, and maybe it even feels like the valley of the shadow of death to you. If you've ever had that sort of experience, and I think most of us at some point in life have probably had that sort of experience, then you can probably begin to identify to some degree with Paul and Barnabas. Back up just a few chapters in the book of Acts. These guys are doing something that hasn't been done before. They are setting out into non-Jewish territory, started in Antioch, and they're sent off to places the gospel had not gone before. They meet people who had not yet heard that God raised Jesus from the dead, and in him there is forgiveness of sin. And the gospel was well-received. Yeah, there was some pushback here and there, and there was that one guy, and, but by and large, they traveled around, and they were planting churches, and people were being receptive, and the Holy Spirit was going before them, and the work was bearing fruit, and they came back excited, and they were filled with joy, even though there were a few little things here and there. Overall, the mission was a huge success. This was the they didn't, you don't call the first thing the first thing until you get the second thing normally, but we call it Paul's first missionary journey. And it was a big deal, and it went really well. And it went so well that after a while, he's going to go do another one. You can imagine the excitement. I mean, we're told as they're, they're traveling around Paul and Barnabas, even after they had this initial conflict, they head off back to Jerusalem. To discuss the question. We'll get to the question in a minute. But as they're going, they're reporting the conversion of the Gentiles. And it brings great joy to all the believers. And so people are excited about what's happening. There's momentum. There's energy. And then those people show up. Certain people. You might have some certain people in your life. I won't ask you to say amen. You can just keep that to yourself. But you probably have some of these folks in your life. And when those people show up, conflict emerges. 
And that's what happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 15, chapter 13, chapter 14. There's a few little things that have to be navigated, but by and large, the tone is overwhelmingly positive and filled with joy because people who've never heard the God, the nations are turning to Jesus. And the church is celebrating that with joy. But then all of a sudden, these people show up. They came all the way there from Judea and began to teach. (laughs) And you can imagine how this goes over. Yeah, I know you found Jesus and all, and that's great. Let me tell you about Moses (laughs) and circumcision and the dietary regulations. And you can kind of imagine how that falls on the the mission field. Everybody's excited because they got the spirit. And then these guys show up and start talking about how you can't go to the barbecue place anymore. And there's surgery involved. (laughs) And all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas find themselves in, quote, no small dissension and debate, which is a way of saying this was a really big deal. It wasn't a small conflict. It was a significant conflict. So what do we do with the conflict? How do we proceed? Well, the thing that we begin to discover is that this conflict setting provides opportunity for the early church to clarify some things. And conflict typically creates space to clarify some things. In this instance, we're going to see that they begin to clarify the nature of the work of Christ, and the nature of salvation. Peter's answer to this question is, what has Jesus done and is it enough? So this conflict over who has to abide by which rules creates the opportunity for the church to articulate the sufficiency of Christ. The perfect, unfailing, all-sufficiency of Christ where nothing is added to His work, nothing is contributed to His work. He does everything that had to be done. He does everything that must be done. And He alone can do it. And He alone has done it. That's the first thing they begin to clarify. And then they begin to clarify how we're going to get believers from different backgrounds to actually live in peace with one another. And you might think, that's the harder part, isn't it? But nevertheless, that's, that's the second piece. So, so there's two questions for them. Is Jesus enough? And how do we live together? And if we're going to sum up what they discovered, we might do it this way. We, the church cannot add to the work of Christ. But we must take up the character of Christ. We can't add to anything Jesus has done, but what He's done needs to infiltrate our lives to such a degree that His character is just filling us up. His character characterizes our life as individuals and as a church. We can't add to the work of Christ, but we must take up the character of Christ. So let's get clear on the problem that got us to this point. There's really two problems. There's the surface problem. It's often this way too. There's the surface problem and there's the deeper problem. The surface problem is the question of what do we do with the Gentiles, right? Remember Gentiles? 
If you're a first century Jew, there's two groups of people in the world, us and them. <laughs> the Gentiles would have distinguished between a whole bunch of different folks, Parthians and Scythians and Medes and all kinds of Romans and Greeks and Hellenists and all these folks. But for the Jews, it was us and everybody else, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and the nations, all right? So the story is being told from that perspective, us and them. And now it seems God is accepting them because the Holy Spirit has fallen on them. And what are we, like, what does that mean for us? How do we proceed? So the surface problem, kind of the indicator, is that, is this question of how do the Gentiles get included? They're not us. They're not Jews. They don't eat the things we eat. They don't worship the way we worship. Up until this point, they haven't worshiped our God. Like, all of these crucial aspects of our life, I mean, day-to-day-to-day observance of our religion, how are we supposed to do that with these people? And that problem was brewing for several chapters. Peter will remind the Jerusalem council when he makes his speech in just a few minutes of when he went out, he doesn't mention Cornelius by name, but he is alluding to when he had this vision from heaven and there's all these animals and all kinds of stuff and he begins to discover that it's not up to him who decide, to decide who God accepts and who God rejects. Only God gets to decide that. And then he shows up at Cornelius' house, talks about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit shows up. And all of a sudden, they're outsiders that appear to be treated like insiders by God. And this is new, but all right, we can deal. <laughs> and then it just kind of accelerates, doesn't it? They go up to Antioch, like getting a little further away from Jerusalem, a little too far for comfort. And all of a sudden, you got the first multi-ethnic church, and they're getting excited, and the Holy Spirit's showing up. And all of a sudden, they decide they need to have a missions conference, and Paul and Barnabas get sent out, commissioned from the conference, and they go to Crete, and they begin preaching the gospel and planting churches, and people are getting converted. Then there's, it's no longer just that one guy, it was kind of neat when it was the one guy. It's always nice when there's one, right? Because you can manage one non-status quo kind of person. <laughs> but when it starts to get to be, when there's more of them than there are us, then it's a problem, right? Because you can't manage it quite as effectively when you, when you don't have the majority vote. And so, this conflict is brewing. From Cornelius to the first missionary journey, all of a sudden there are untold multitudes of non-Jews who are beginning to worship Jesus and the God who raised him from the dead. And so all of a sudden the question is there, what do we do with them? <laughs> How do we relate to them? And so Paul and Barnabas receive a delegation of certain individuals. Certain individuals arrive, they sit down, 
And they're like, these guys don't mince words. Unless you are circumcised. And notice the way this is phrased. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What's the assumption there? What's the the undergirding vision of salvation? Like up until this point, it's been all about Jesus. Pentecost, Peter gets out, starts preaching, he's talking about Jesus. Apostles get in trouble because they talk too much about Jesus. Folks start getting stoned because they talk too much about, not stone like that stone, stone like throw rocks at you stone. That's not in the notes, so I had to kind of clarify. Like they literally threw rocks at them until they were dead. People are being martyred and dying and suffering. Why? Because they talk about Jesus. He seems important. Earlier in Acts we hear, there is no other name under heaven through which you might be saved. Jesus. And now the question of salvation comes up again. But it's not just Jesus, it's Jesus and. It's no longer, there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. It's, oh yeah, Moses has some expectations too. And Paul and Barnabas don't take kindly to that. That's how we say it around here, right? I don't know how you translate that into Aramaic or Greek, but that's how we would say it. They don't take kindly to it, and they have no small dissension and debate. And so the church in Antioch says, well, we can send a delegation too. Paul and Barnabas, you guys get up to Jerusalem and get this thing sorted out. Let's figure it out. And that initial problem, the question of what do we do with the Gentiles, how, how are they going to be included in a Jewish religion? And again, this is something, this is one of the things we, we miss when we read the Bible sometimes, because there are Christians all over the world, they speak different languages. <laughs> but like, when this thing first got started, everybody spoke the same language. There's just a handful of folks, and they were all Jews. It was a Jewish religion. And if you kind of want to you know, you can kind of map the family tree of Methodists. You got uh, AMEs and CMEs and UMCs and now GMCs, all different kinds of Methodists, right? Well, in the first century, you can map the, the Jewish family tree. You got Pharisees and Sadducees and followers of the way. That's Peter and the Christians, right? And they just, they all kind of see themselves as different little groups in the bigger Jewish family. Until this happened, and folks in Crete started getting saved in Antioch. Pamphylia, if you know where that is. All these different places. Until this point, they're like, this is a Jewish thing, and everybody keeps Moses, so it's not really a question. The Jesus and question didn't come up before this point because everybody avoided the barbecue places. And the seafood. Well, some of the seafood. Not all, just some. But now the question's up. And that initial question, what do we do with them, leads to another question, what has Jesus actually done? And we can give thanks to God for this conflict, because that's the most important question you will ask. Who is Jesus, and what has he done? 
for me and for them. Who is Jesus? What has he done? And what does he require? And so that's what they have to sort out. So there's two problems. There's the surface problem. What do we do with the Gentiles? But the more important problem, the deeper problem that will solve the initial problem, if we can get this right, what do we do with Jesus? Who is he? What has he done? And so they come together in Jerusalem. You kind of get a hint of how this thing's going to go because Paul and Barnabas on the way are just talking about, <laughs> look at all these folks getting saved, you know? We had a revival meeting and it's just it's great. And, it, and they're received with joy, which sort of suggests this is going to go well for them. We hear about more excitement and joy at the end of it. But everybody gets together and you hear about the Pharisees. And I want to I say this about the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones who stand up and say, Jesus is great, but it's necessary for them to get circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Now, these guys get a bad rap in the Bible, I want to say. Like, let's just, let's remember. It may be helpful to remember that the Pharisees are the first century conservatives. They are trying to hold on to what matters. Moses matters. Who are we? We are the circumcised. Who are they? The not circumcised. Who are we? We are the people who don't eat what they eat. And you have these identity markers. And if you know anything about identity markers, you have them too, whether you realize it or not. Identity markers run deep. That's why Methodists and Baptists pick on each other all the time. Because we automatically assume whatever identity we hold is better than whichever identity you hold. That's kind of how identities work. We wouldn't be it if we didn't think it wasn't better, would we? Democrats and Republicans. Presbyterians and Lutherans. Like, just pick the identity. And those things run, they run deeper than we realize. And the Pharisees, like they're wrong. Don't get me wrong, they're wrong. But they're wrong because they're trying to be faithful to God. So let's not just caricature these guys and pretend like they're just kind of the legalists over there with their checklist, kind of making a list and checking it twice kind of thing. That's not who these guys are. These guys read their Bible every day. They pray multiple times a day. They are unquestionably devoted to their God. And now they're in a place where their God has done something they didn't expect and they're trying to figure out how to deal. So we'll give them a little grace. They're wrong, but let's at least try to not turn them into cartoons. Pharisees stand up and said, hey, I got my Bible with me. They're Bible people. We'd love the Pharisees if they were around today because they always bring their Bible to church. And so they flip over and they start reading from the Old Testament. They start reading Moses and they start reading, like, it's very clear, black and white on the page. It is necessary, if you want to be a part of the people of God, if you want to be involved in what God is doing, like, go all the way back. They talk about Moses. They could have gone to Abraham. Go all the way back. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in this world, you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That's who we are. That's our identity. 
Peter is beginning to see things a little more clearly. He's beginning to discover that, <laughs> that what the kids just said a few minutes ago is true. He's beginning to, to discover that maybe Moses isn't a formula for acceptance before God. Maybe Moses is more like a diagnostic tool. Not so much, here's how you get right with God, but here's why you can't get right with God no matter how hard you try. You can do everything in the book. You can keep every law. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians, remember, he used to be one of these guys. Pharisee of Pharisee, blameless under the law. Anybody want to claim that one? I mean, let that sink in. The Apostle Paul, I was blameless. Don't try to bring a charge against me. That doesn't mean that he never messed up because the law assumes it's going to be broken. So it says, hey, when you sin in this way, do this kind of offering. And what Paul is saying is like, when I sinned in that way, I did what the law required and I, was, and I remained in good standing. But he says it very clear. Like he's not over there going, oh, no, does God love me? He's saying I'm blameless under the law. Bring it on. But it begins to dawn on him. Because the Spirit of God reveals it to him. That the energy he was giving <laughs> to be in control of his destiny or his fate or his salvation was a distraction from the one person who was more important who could do something for him that he couldn't do for himself and that the law couldn't do for him. So he says, no, like all that I've attained, all of my worth and blamelessness, he said, if it gets in the way of knowing Jesus, it's garbage. And Peter is realizing the same thing. And so he recounts, like, brothers, you know it. I went out there, Cornelius, and people are, like, the spirit has fallen, and that means God accepts them. And this is the crucial piece. This is where he lands. He says, look. The law is a burden for us. Like, we're Jews, we love it, it's a burden. It's kind of a love-hate relationship almost. Like, we love it, it's who we are, it's our identity marker, but it's really, <laughs> it's a burden. And we struggle under it. Is that what, like, like, when God shows up in someone's life, are we supposed to say, hey, guess what? Now that, you, now that you've been forgiven of your sins and you feel the assurance of salvation in God, here's the burden that you're going to have to carry. So Peter says, that's not how we need to come at it. Verse 11, on the contrary, we believe that we, and this is not we, us and them, this is we Jews. We believe that we Jews will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now he talks about them. And he says, access to God is identical regardless of what your last name is or what people group you're from, your ethnicity, like us, them, all that stuff that we all know all too well. It says that is all superseded by the perfect sufficiency of Christ. 
And that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, friends, Jesus is enough. We can't add to the work of Christ. We can't say, yes, you believe in Jesus. You've offered your life to Jesus. You have, there's this fidelity, trust. You, you love Him, and He has accepted you, and His Spirit has fallen upon you, and that's evidence that He has accepted you. We can't come back now and say, hey, that's great. You also have to do this. It's that Jesus and thing. They're not saying Jesus or. They're not saying pick Jesus or Moses. They're saying Jesus is great, but He's not enough. And that's where we've got to be careful. The most crucial, essential, unquestionable doctrine is that there is nothing to be added to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When his arms are spread, when his hands and feet are pierced, when blood flows down his wounded flesh, when he says, it is finished. Brothers and sisters, it's finished. And there's nothing anybody 2,000 years later can add to it is finished. Or 20 years later, Nothing. We try. We act like it all the time. And then we sin and we're brought face to face with our, the absolute reality of our insufficiency. If I just do this for Jesus, if I just do this, if I just, like, like we, 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 we act like his acceptance of us depends on something we provide. And then we fall flat on our faces and we feel like, how could he love me? I mean, maybe you've been there. You're like, how, like if, if you ever find yourself asking, how can he love me? The answer isn't because you've got something in you that's lovable. The answer is because he said it's finished. Because he is worthy. Because he is able. Because he is merciful. Because he is gracious. Because his love is perfect. And if this depended on, like if there were something I could add, every day I'm reminded, it would be a dis- like just, if it depends on something I can add, I'm out. I'll see you later. And when I get in that place and like some unholy anger or temper flares or I say something off the cuff that I shouldn't say, that I, like, I know, like you know what it's like. It's right there, it's on your lips and it's coming and you're like, that doesn't need to be coming out, but it's coming out and it's wrong and it's sinful and it's hurtful. When it's happening, we are reminded <laughs> that if it was Jesus and something I could offer, I'm going straight to hell because I got nothing. I got nothing. College degree, it's not really helpful in this. PhD doesn't really help on this process. Preaching, 
ordination, clergy and Sometimes they act like preachers. They're a little higher on the holiness rung than everybody else. That's Jesus and. That's the assumption. You can do something to get you closer to God. It's not true. Like if I have to add something, it's a lost cause. And when we find ourselves asking a question, in despair, because we like we know in our heart of hearts we are lost causes if we are left to ourselves. When we ask ourselves, how can he love me? How can he accept me? He knows what I've done. He knows what I've said. He knows who I've hurt. He knows, he knows, he knows. How can he love me? That is the moment when you need to preach the gospel to yourself. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were unable, while we were incapable, while we were bound in sin, while we were failures, while we were incompetent, while we were bound in infirmity, while we were rebels, while we were enemies, in every instance when we had turned from God, when we had resisted Him, He offers something that cannot be added to. It is perfect. It is all-sufficient. It is infinite. It is glorious. It is unchanging. He has done it. And He has done it because He loves you. Because He is worthy. Because He is majestic. Because He is holy. Because He is good. Jesus doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us because He is. He doesn't love me because I'm good. He loves me because he's good. That's the gospel. He doesn't love me because I observe a particular custom or worship in a certain way. He loves me because he's good. That's the only reason. And he has done what only he can do. And he has done everything that must be done. And nothing can be added to it. Christ is sufficient. There is no Jesus and. There is only Jesus Now, you might be thinking, well, then why, preacher, did they give them instructions? They didn't tell them to keep all the law, but they told them not to eat some things, and they told them about some relationship expectations, if we can put it that way. They told them not to, well, let's just read it. Here it is, right? We don't want to burden you overly, but that we have expectations. Here's what you got to do. Abstain from things that have been polluted, like don't eat food offered to idols. Avoid things that have been strangled in blood. And avoid fornication. And we're thinking, if Jesus is sufficient, why do they hit him with all these expectations? 
Doesn't that seem kind of counterintuitive or conflicting or something like that? And the crucial thing to see here is they're not hitting them with expect, like, like, like Jesus is sufficient, but oh, hey, here's what we expect. Here's what you have to do if you want to experience a sufficiency. It's not a code. It's not like a requirement. It's not, hey, if you want to be good with God, here are the four things you've got to do. We're not going to hit you with 682 or whatever there were, but here's the four. Because if there's only one, it means Jesus is insufficient. He is sufficient. It is finished. He has done it. There's nothing we can add to that. These four things are not adding to that. What's going on here? The church... In these different areas, the Jewish world and the Gentile world are being asked to concede something. They're being asked to deny themselves for the sake of the other. These handful of expectations actually come from Leviticus 17 and 18. Leviticus 17 and 18 have a series of instructions on what Hebrew people need to do when outsiders are in their midst. And how you, how you live together. If there's an alien in your land, here's what you need to do. And James is basically saying, hey, we've got, like, we've got the Scripture. We're not sort of, you know, the Pharisees may have been like, well, you're just ignoring the Scriptures. James is saying, no, the Scriptures help us here. The Scriptures tell us the Gentiles are coming. And the scriptures give us some guidance on how Jews and, alien and Gentiles can, can live together. And there's a handful of things. And in each instance, right, right the hardcore Pharisees have got to, they have to concede something. And the Gentiles, they have to concede something. Because in a compromise, everybody's got to give a little bit, don't they? Because if they stood up and said, no. We'll do it our way. Then they're not bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. And so the answer is, look, here's a handful of things. And if you'll, if you'll concede these, I think we're going to be able to hold this community together. It's going to be a little tough. We've already got a big conflict going on, but if you'll concede these things, I think it'll help out over here with these guys and Hey, look, they're giving it, a, they're trying, they're, they're making concessions too. So the Pharisees don't get what they want. Circumcision and all the dietary regulations and things in Moses. And the Gentiles are saying, hey, you know what? We care about you more than we care about ourselves. So we'll watch what we eat. Because caring more about the other than the self is the definition of Christ-likeness. He was in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. Instead, he emptied himself. He lowered himself and became a servant. James is asking the Gentiles to become servants, and he's asking the Pharisees to become servants. Why? Why? Because Jesus became a servant. So yeah, we can't add to the work of Christ. But the gospel calls us to take up his character. The gospel calls us to share his posture. The gospel calls us to be transformed so that we're not like, hey, 
my way or the highway, but to say, all right, I'll concede that. I don't have to have my way. I don't have to have my preferences in this instance. Because after all, I'm only saved because Jesus didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. He became a servant. We can't add in. Like, they're, not, they're not all of a sudden saying, we're not going to be legalists, but here's the law you have to keep. That's not what's happening. They're saying Jesus is enough and we need you to show some to grow in Christ likeness right now so we can hold this thing together because if we can't hold it together now forget the second missionary journey this thing is sunk communities in conflict are not missional communities it's very like if <laughs> it's very hard to be committed to the gospel for your neighbors and the nations if you have the people in your church by the neck, isn't it? And so they are being invited to take up the character of Christ, to concede, to consider someone else's preference. Not for their own sake, but for the sake of the mission, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ who offered himself for them. They're asking us to do the same thing. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.